The National Archives podcast series, From British Bobby to Hong Kong Copper, presented by Christine Thomas. This talk was recorded live on the 18th of September 2014 at the National Archives Q. It's nice for me to be given the chance to talk about a group of pioneering policemen whom I really admire. Um, I'm going to be talking about a few British policemen who spent time in Hong Kong in the 19th and early 20th centuries. Research in Hong Kong policemen, or for that matter, anyone who spent time in Hong Kong, is never going to be an easy task because so many of the records in the colony were destroyed during the Japanese occupation. And what we're left with is snippets of information which can be found amongst colonial office correspondents here at the National Archives at Kew, together with other bits and pieces from loads of diverse sources. So let's take ourselves off to the Far East. These days we could fly there in 12 or 13 hours, but back in the 19th century the journey had to be undertaken by sea. In the 1840s there was no Suez Canal, so the journey took anything from four to six months around the Cape. The railway came to Egypt in the 1850s and then passengers from the Far East would um, go as far as Suez um, and then take the railway up to Alexandria and then catch another boat to the UK. So that reduced the journey time some, somewhat. And then when the Suez Canal came along, the journey was shortened to just six or seven weeks. Our destination is nothing more than a pinprick on the coast of South China. And if we take a closer look, here we see the island of Hong Kong. Here's the Kowloon Peninsula, ceded in 1860. And here are the new territories, ceded in 1898, for that famous term of 99 years. And you've probably all heard the famous quote of Hong Kong being a barren rock. In fact, the full statement included the fact that there was one tree on the island, and that was in a place called Happy Valley. These days we know Happy Valley for its very famous race course, but it also has another claim to fame. It's the location of the colony's very early European cemetery. And over the years, this was to become the resting place for over 12,000 souls, many of them policemen. But what of the town itself? Well, that developed west of Happy Valley, right on the harbour's edge. The first buildings were the barracks, and then the trading houses were established. And then, of course, the taverns began to spring up. And soon, every second building along the main Queen's Road housed a tavern, from which drunken sailors staggered and collapsed into the gutters. The sailors' needs were very simple. All they wanted was grog and women. And apparently they took their grog laced with gunpowder and arsenic, which apparently gave it quite a kick. And they got their women in the brothels of the Chinese quarter of town. Hong Kong was fast becoming a lawless place when the dreaded Major Kane was appointed the first chief magistrate. Dreaded because of his love of corporal punishment. 
and he recruited the first policeman from the ranks of the military. Most of the soldiers had 18 or 20 years service under their belts, and many of them had married local girls when the um, regiment had been stationed in Madras. And I think without exception, all of them were suffering from diseased livers. In 1844, an ordinance was passed which created the Hong Kong police force proper. And so the governor sent to London for experienced men. John May, one of the first superintendents of London's Metropolitan Police, was in charge of a division. And no doubt on hearing of the formation of a police force in one of the colonies, thought this a very good opportunity for one of his sons to make a name for himself. Charles was the eldest son, and he was serving as an inspector on K Division in the East End of London. He was the perfect candidate. But one man wasn't enough to establish a new police force, so two sergeants, also from K Division, were recommended. These men were Thomas Smithers and Hugh McGregor. And all of them were going to be advanced one rank. So Charles was going to become the superintendent with Thomas and Hugh becoming inspectors. Charles was no stranger to high-profile tasks. And in the midst of making all the arrangements for this overseas voyage, he suddenly found that he was directed to travel to France to arrest a murderer. And this was none other than the famous artist Richard Dadd, who'd murdered his father in Kent the year before. Charles journeyed to Paris on what should have been a very straightforward and very quick mission. But as is so often the case, bureaucracy reared its ugly head, and he and his sergeant found that they were there for a whole month trying to get the paperwork sorted out. But ever the diplomat, Charles kept his cool and eventually, after a month, he and his sergeant took custody of prisoner dad and back they came to London. One of the first things Charles did on his return was to submit his expense claim to the receiver. It was a whopping £49 and five shillings, which was an enormous amount in those days. Thomas Smithers had joined the Met on the formation of K Division um, in 1830. And at that, that time, he was 29 years of age, married with a little baby son. And he was on the lookout for a job that would provide a decent wage for his family. He proved a very efficient police officer and he gained promotion to sergeant after five years. Many years later, Charles May was to say of Thomas that he'd never found any man more conscientious in the discharge of his duties. And by the time of his Hong Kong recruitment, Thomas had four children, with the youngest being just a year old. Sergeant Hugh McGregor was a relative newcomer to the Met. Um, he joined in May 1838. He had spent 10 years in India with the 26th Regiment, so he was no stranger to travel and to the ways of the East. But a priority task for Charles prior to leaving for overseas um, was to find himself a wife. And this he did, and he married just one week before sailing. 
Thomas, as we know, was already married with several children, and it was the same with Hugh. However, Whitehall wasn't prepared to go to the extra expense of paying for the passages for wives and children. Charles was okay. He, he received quite a decent salary, so he was able to afford to pay for his, his wife's passage himself. But Thomas and Hugh left their families behind in London. So they set sail from London in October 1844 and arrived in Hong Kong the following February, five months later. But Charles had planned very well and they arrived with 50 truncheons, 50 rattles, 50 lanterns, 20 pairs of handcuffs, a sword and belt for the superior officer, plus a pair of pistols, a police cutlass, and a cape. Again, no doubt for the superior officer. And they also came supplied with material for the uniforms for the European contingent of the force. And Charles wrote his first report on the state of the police just a few weeks after they arrived. And in this, he recommended having a central station from which all duties could be coordinated. The building recommended as being that first central police station um, was actually that being used as number three police station in Wan Chai, although for over a hundred years, it, since 1904, 1914, it was in use as um, a post office. Most of the time, police work was very humdrum, but uh, one evening in 1847 brought a little excitement. Daniel Caldwell, an assistant superintendent of police, received information that a pirate boat was being provisioned in the harbour. His informant was none too certain which boat it was, but he pointed out a couple of possibilities. So two boarding parties were formed, Caldwell in charge of one and Thomas in charge of the other. And they struck together. And as Thomas got onto his boat, the master and crew panicked and took flight straight into the harbour. And Thomas found that the boat contained muskets, gunpowder, stink pots, not the usual sort of cargo for a law-abiding vessel. So Thomas had struck gold. But his assistant superintendent came up empty-handed. Um, perhaps the choice of boats was intentional because uh, perhaps Caldwell didn't want to get involved in uh, any possible fight. Um, it has to be said that Caldwell was a rather dubious character and uh, it wasn't long before he was asked to resign from the police force after being arrested for debt. After a couple of years, Thomas managed to save up enough money to bring his wife, one of his sons, and his little daughter to Hong Kong. Now, Thomas's half-brother, John Smithers, also turns up in Hong Kong around this time, and I think it's more than likely that it was he who was responsible for accompanying Mary and the children on that very long sea voyage. One day in August 1848, Thomas's duties were to take two constables to the other side of the island, to an outlying station there. And the journey was going to be made on the police boat. 
and after dropping off the constables, he was to patrol around the island on the lookout for pirate vessels. As the weather was good, the colonial surgeon recommended taking along seven police, European police constables who were in the hospital because he thought the sea air would do them the power of good. And Thomas was also looking forward to being at sea because during the summer months he suffered from really severe bouts of fever. And so they set off and the day dawned calm and very beautiful. But without their knowledge, approaching across the South China Sea was a typhoon and it hit during the afternoon. The police boat made for a neighbouring island to take shelter in one of the bays and ride out the storm. Many Chinese junks were also sheltered there. At midnight, one of these, buffeted by the wind, was thrown against the police boat, breaking it into pieces and throwing the police and crew into the raging seas. Thomas, along with his son, 13 crew members, and the seven European constables were all drowned. Thomas was just weeks away from his pension, and his wife and young daughter were left penniless. They had no means of getting back to England. But local tradesmen made a collection, and this brought in enough money to pay for their passages back to London. Both Charles May and the governor recommended that a decent pension be paid to Mary, but officials in Whitehall thought otherwise. They granted a paltry £20 per annum, providing Mary didn't marry. Mary and Harriet were reduced to living in virtual poverty. Mary died just a couple of years later, and Harriet was left an orphan. And it wasn't long before she too followed Mary to the grave. In the history books, any history books which mention the history of the Hong Kong police, you normally find about a one-line entry on Thomas. Um, today I've given you a little bit more information, not a lot, because obviously um, the, the talk is limited in time. But I've been researching him over the last 20 years, and you'll find a, a book on there that's about 40 or 50 pages long on um, his family background and whatever. So there is a lot more to Thomas than just a one-line entry in the history books. Hugh McGregor gave very good service for a few years um, and then returned to the UK to be with his family. And they settled in Yorkshire, when, where Hugh went on to have a very long career with one of the Yorkshire constabularies. Charles May spent the rest of his life working towards bringing law and order to Hong Kong. He had to wait 10 years before seeing the opening of the first purpose-built central police station and another decade before a building really large enough for purpose was built. Charles was uh, a pretty keen speculator and he soon owned land and property in Hong Kong. Um, and this apparently included a notorious nest of brothels quite near to the police station. And it was only after considerable pressure from the governor that Charles actually sold these on. And perhaps it was for this reason, or perhaps the close proximity of the brothels to the station, 
that resulted in a regulation which required all European and Indian policemen to undergo a monthly medical examination to make certain they hadn't picked up anything unpleasant. Charles died on his way back to the UK in 1879, having spent 34 years in the Far East. He was buried at sea off Singapore, but he's remembered on the family headstone in Kensal Green Cemetery. And I think it's fair to say that John May would have been very proud of his eldest son, which is more than could be said for the youngest son, but that's a whole different story and it, it doesn't have anything to do with Hong Kong. So, back to that fledgling police service in Hong Kong. Many European constables had to be recruited locally because the UK government wasn't prepared to go to the expense of shipping the whole force out from England. Most of them were soldier, discharged soldiers or sailors, and their love of drink obviously brought problems. Pay was really low in those early days and that didn't help with recruiting men of good calibre. Salaries were increased slightly in the 1860s but then men had to sign up to do a five-year tour of duty and if they stayed for ten then they became entitled to a pension. However, the average length of service of a European constable at this time was three months, much the same as it was in the Metropolitan Police. In 1867, six constables were recruited from the Met, but only three of them proved to be of any value. The other three were dismissed shortly after arrival. During the 1870s, major recruiting campaigns were undertaken in the UK, and police officers came out from Scottish constabularies, as well as the Royal Irish Constabulary. And these men proved to be just what Hong Kong was looking for. Then the Metropolitan Police was targeted again, and a batch of 20 constables recruited. But oh dear, Met officers and Hong Kong don't always seem to have gone together, because within weeks of their arrival, one of them was dismissed for insubordination and mutinous conduct. The man in question was George Brierley. Now, George was a really experienced constable, having seen service, first of all, with the Royal Irish Constabulary, where he served for seven years. He resigned on the 15th of November, 1870, to get another situation. And that situation turned out to be with the Metropolitan Police. Now... It appears during the recruitment process for the Hong Kong police in London that George has asked to see copies of the regulations governing the Hong Kong police. He wanted to know what he'd be letting himself in for, but apparently they weren't available. But he was told they were very similar to what he was serving with under the Met. So they set sail for Hong Kong and it was only during the sea voyage that the men became aware of this regulation requiring them to undergo the monthly medical examination. To make matters worse, they heard it was normally conducted with a warder at the jail, sometimes even convicts. I think we all know how stories can become distorted but it's fair to say that they were not at all happy about this. 
And nowhere is the controversial examination mentioned, although it has to be said that the full regulations at that time oh, were at least 18 pages, if not more than 20. So this agreement was very short. And the group arrived in Hong Kong on the 10th of March. Two days later, they were sworn in at the magistracy. A couple of days later, they were informed of the full regulations, including the monthly examination. Murmurs of discontent rumbled through the ranks, probably fueled by members of the Scottish contingent who'd come out a couple of years earlier, because they too objected to this. Two, two weeks later, they were ordered to attend for the examination. Each and every one of the new recruits refused. Standoff continued for three days, but eventually they all gave in. But George, being the most outspoken, was singled out as the ringleader and dismissed and refused the cost of his passage back to London. But George had organised a petition which was signed by all the powerful merchants of the time. And he also got the press onto his case, which meant the whole nasty incident received an awful lot of publicity. Again, a collection was raised, and this brought in enough to get George back to London. But the Metropolitan Police refused to take him back because he'd been sacked from Hong Kong. But I'm pleased to say that he did go on to have a very long career with the water board. And I say I'm pleased about this because I have a certain amount of sympathy for George. These days, he would have made an excellent Federation man, but back then... He was just seen as being a troublemaker. The remainder of the men were reinstated, but that monthly examination was never again held. So he'd, he'd done his bit. George had done his bit. Another of the major problems facing the force was the question of language, because the rank and file consisted of Europeans, Indians, and Chinese, few of whom could speak to each other. So in 1869, a language school was established. A few months after Brierley's dismissal, another couple of his colleagues uh, caused another stir in the colony by asking to resign. They cited loads of reasons, one of which was that they were compelled to learn a language which they saw as being completely useless and which they had absolutely no interest in acquiring. Were they allowed to resign? No, they were dismissed. One of these men, Frederick Hooper, continued on to Queensland, Australia, where he found employment on the railways. And in later years, he served as alderman on the local council and then ended up running a very successful hotel. And he died at the age of 77 and is buried in Brisbane. And after this, many were to use Hong Kong as a staging post to the Antipodes. Now, it may seem from these last two intakes that Met officers were a load of troublemakers, but actually nothing could be further from the truth. From the 1867 intake, George Horsepool served for 28 years, retiring as Chief Inspector. Thomas Gray served for 20. James Halloran served for 10. And here are George Hennessy and William Stanton from that 1872 Met intake. They went on to serve for 20 years, along with Joseph Corcoran and 
William Baker. All of them retiring as chief inspectors. But enough about recruits from London's Met Police. Let's journey north of the border, because the recruits from Scotland were always very highly acclaimed as individuals. John Swanson was no exception to this. John had been born and raised in Caithness in the far north of Scotland. And as a teenager, he joined the Edinburgh Police and in 1871 was one of 45 recruits to the Hong Kong Police. They arrived in January 1872 and the press reported their arrival. As they were all Scotsmen, they dressed in their kilts. But when they heard that these weren't the normal attire in Hong Kong, they changed into something a little bit more normal. That is all except one of them. He wasn't to be put out by fear of a little ridicule, and he came ashore proudly flourishing his national attire. How proud would the whole bunch have been if they'd known that the 20th century would uh, see the Hong Kong police pipers at the Edinburgh Tattoo? But John proved to be an efficient officer, and he was also very careful with his money, and after five years, he'd saved enough to bring out his bride. Annie Sanderson arrived in Hong Kong on the Fleurs Castle on the 9th of October 1876 and the couple were married 10 days later. Annie's arrival and the marriage were both recorded in the diary of one of John's colleagues. And the following year John was promoted to inspector and his career can then be tracked through the Hong Kong Blue Books great source of information for anyone who served in colonial government. And here we can see his advancements from Inspector Third Class up to Inspector First Class. 5th of May, 1877, Third Class. 1st of February, 1884, Second Class. 1st of January, 1888, First Class. The couple's first child, Maria Jane, was born a year after their marriage, but this was Hong Kong and the climate was far from kind to babies and young children. Maria Jane died before she could reach the age of two. Another daughter, Margaret, called her Bremner, died at the age of three years and ten months. A baby, known only by the initials DM, lived for an hour. Annie Agnes lived for ten months. And fi finally, Archibald died just before his sixth birthday. These deaths are all recorded on a headstone in a remote section of the cemetery in Happy Valley. The inscription also records where the children died, which in turn gives us the police stations that John was posted to. 1879, Shokiwan. 1884, Wan Chai, which was on the prior. 1886, Number 7 Station at West Point. And 1890, at the Gap. According to the newspapers, John dealt with some pretty gruesome murder cases and some run-of-the-mill gambling cases. Not to mention the case of the stinking fish, um, where he spotted, or should I say his nose alerted him to, a couple of hawkers who were trying to get rid of their rotting fish on unsuspecting members of the public. 
In October 1884, Inspector Swanson played an important part in preserving peace in the colony. Cargo boat coolies had gone on strike and riots had broken out. And the unrest spread to eastern districts where more coolies were intimidated. The inspector assured them of police protection, so they returned to work. But the next day, a mob assembled ready to attack them. However, they hadn't reckoned on the inspector who'd armed his men with bamboo poles and they managed to drive the rioters away. And John was extremely popular within, within the community and the local Chinese residents gave him the nickname of Ironsides. Diplomacy comes in many forms and being a big brash Scotsman obviously worked wonders in Hong Kong. But in 1890, John's health began to fail, and by the February, he had developed pleurisy. In the early hours of Friday the 6th of February, he slipped into unconsciousness and passed away. John was also buried in that remote section, high up on the hill in the cemetery in Happy Valley, and his headstone can be found right next to that of his children. Now, before I leave the story of this Scotsman, I must relate a lovely little story about wee Jock Swanson, one of his surviving children. The story goes that when the child was just five years of age, he saw his father chasing a man in the street. And as the man scampered past, wee Jock caught hold of his cue and held on to it for all that he was worth until his father could come up and actually make the arrest and his father's colleagues were in such admiration of this little child for having done this that they made a collection and purchased a silver cup on which was engraved, presented to Jay Swanson by members of the Hong Kong police force in admiration of his bravery and courage in arresting a thief. A lovely little anecdote. Now, as we've seen, Hong Kong's location on the edge of the South China coast saw severe typhoons sweeping in and wreaking havoc in the colony, bringing down the flimsy buildings and causing hundreds of deaths. The typhoon of 1874 was particularly bad, and at Central Police Station, the police quarters were unroofed and most of the woodwork destroyed. Across the harbour, Yamate police station was under four foot of water and when the sea receded, it left a steam launch and other small craft stranded on the basement floor. The great storm of 1889 affected the whole of Central District. Now we've reached 1898 when the new territories were ceded to Britain for that term of 99 years. And as head of the force, it was the duty of Francis Henry May to ensure that the handover in law enforcement went as smoothly as possible. No referendum would have been held and consequently the local Chinese villagers would have had absolutely no say in their future. Suddenly they found that they were to come under British rule and that British police stations were being erected on their land. They were extremely unhappy about this. In April 1899, Francis May, together with a group of Sikh policemen, journeyed out to the new territories to get the lie of the land and inspect the new matchshed, which was to be the temporary police station at Tai Po. The party was met by 
what was described at the time as a group of hostile natives. And the local elders were quite unable to con control these. And so the police group retreated to their match shed, but that evening they heard drums and saw lighted flares approaching in the distance. So they withdrew to the safety of a nearby hill. And they had to sit there or lie there and watch as the match shed came under a hail of bullets and was set alight. So thank goodness they'd left it in time. In the following days, uh, a new building was erected, but that suffered exactly the same fate. It was weeks later when the British, la British flag was eventually erected on Matshed Hill. And this was only achieved with the assistance of HMS Fame and her 12-pound guns. It took weeks of high-level talks between the Colonial Secretary and the Governor of Kwantung before the situation began to calm a little bit. With the expansion of the colony came the expansion of the police force, and by 1900, 10 new police stations had been built. The annual report for 1899 shows that 38 Europeans were recruited, with three coming from the Plymouth Police, two from Edinburgh, and one being an approved candidate on the roster of the Royal Irish Constabulary. The lad from Ireland was Edward Brown, and the RIC letter of recommendation states that he was a young man of excellent character and respectable family. On receiving his first pay packet, he bought a straw hat, three pairs of socks, two pairs of pyjamas, a tweed suit, a hat, and a pair of cufflinks. And at this time, the fire brigade was manned by volunteers from the police force. Edward's diary notes his pay, and we can see that he received an extra $9 a month for brigade duties. I also like the note at the bottom of the diary about sending home a shawl and walking stick, obviously presents for his parents. Edward also had a long and successful career in Hong Kong, reaching the rank of inspector. The armour was seen as being a very important part of the household in this extremely hot and humid part of the world. But we've now reached the war years, and as we all know, 2014 is the centenary of the start of World War I. Now, I don't profess to be anything of a military historian, but I did think it appropriate to end this particular talk with mention of the 11 Hong Kong policemen who gave their lives during that conflict. Four of these lads were recruits from London's Met Police, and all of them were relative newcomers to the police service, with only eight years' service between them. Um, one of their colleagues described the first time he'd set foot on his beat alone in London. At the end of the beat instructional, you were sent out into the world on your own. And believe me, I never felt lonelier in my life. A helmet which felt like a ton on my head. A tunic which hooked up tightly round my neck. Trousers in which you could hardly bend your knees a long truncheon in your back pocket, a pocketbook, whistle and armlet. I prayed that all would be quiet for the next couple of hours. 
A couple of years later, this same constable performed his last night duty beat on one of London's bridges. It was December 1909, and he relates, if anybody knows of a colder place at that time of year, they're welcome to it. It was this beat that decided me that there had to be warmer places than this, and I made up my mind to leave the police and to go overseas. A couple of months later, I found myself on a steamer on the way to Hong Kong. The recruits received a bounty of £15 from the Crown agents with which to buy kit, and this normally consisted of a topi and a white suit. Unfortunately, the uniform in Hong Kong was no more comfortable than that in London. A friend tells us that the cloth of which the summer suit was made was not far short in quality of that worn by the inmates in Victoria Jail. However, the topi was seen as an improvement on the helmet, and this was worn at all times by men on day duty, with a peaked cap being worn at night. No doubt, transferred to the detective department with its crisp white linen suits was seen as something to aim for. But war loomed on the horizon, and 1915 saw the departure of 38 Hong Kong policemen who travelled to the UK to enlist. The first volunteers left in July, and by November another batch was ready to leave. The night before departure, the men were treated to a farewell dinner at the Astor House Hotel, and a letter was read out from a colleague already somewhere in France. He said that he was thoroughly enjoying himself and that life would be like an adventurous holiday when some more Hong Kong policemen joined him. The next day, dressed in their police uniforms and carrying their guns, they marched from Central Police Station down to Blake Pier, accompanied by the police pipe band. The balconies along the route were crammed with office workers and the streets were lined with people cheering and they sailed out the harbour to the strains of Old Lang Syne. All church joined the King's Royal Rifles, Silis, the Coldstream Guards, whilst Edwards and Singleton went straight in through the Royal Flying Corps. Six months later, Arthur Allchurch, Police Constable 52, was killed during the Battle of the Somme. He's remembered with honour on the Arras Memorial. The first thing Robert Edwards did on arrival back in the UK was to marry his sweetheart. He and Singleton then enlisted with the Royal Flying Corps at Farnborough and both were soon promoted to corporal. Another Hong Kong police constable, Peter Boyd Gardner, had also joined the Royal Flying Corps. And the last words he'd said to his father before enlisting were, I have an ambition, father, and I will not rest until I fly a Hong Kong aeroplane. During a training flight in Norfolk, Gardner's plane crashed and he was killed. In the spring of 1917, Edwards found himself in France. The RFC undertook aerial observation with the aircraft flying at very slow speed and low altitude over the German defences. And the work became even more dangerous with the arrival of the Red Baron. April 1917 was to become known as Bloody April. And the average flying life of a 
RFC pilot in Arras during this month was just 18 hours. Robert Edwards, police constable 155, was killed on the 30th of April, 1917. His grave can be found at Warlingcourt British Cemetery in France. Edward Charles Sillis joined the Coldstream Guards. He was killed on the 1st of July, 1917, and he's remembered on the Menning Gate. Frederick James Singleton survived the conflict of war, but he couldn't escape the flu pandemic which followed. He was hospitalised in Glasgow, where he died on the 2nd of November, 1918, just a few days before the armistice. Frederick James Singleton, police constable 69, is buried at the Glasgow Western Necropolis. Our 11 Hong Kong policemen are all remembered on a plaque in Hong Kong. And with that, I must end this really brief insight into the, into the history of the Hong Kong police. So thank you all for coming along, and I, I hope you've enjoyed these few stories. This talk was sponsored by the Friends of the National Archives. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved. <laughs>